Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Good morning and welcome again on this uh, this Sunday before Christmas. Uh, so glad that we could all be here on this kind of kind of dark and gray and dreary day. Even on days like today, we still have hope in Jesus. Amen. Amen. So thank you for being here today. Um, again, you may notice uh, the cards are a little different. Uh, we've changed that up a little bit so that if you uh, have something you want to connect about and you've been here, you don't have to fill the same information out asking about your shoe size and mother's maiden name and all that stuff. Uh, so you'll find a few different cards. There's a card just simply for prayer. It just has a space for uh, your prayer request, uh, a name, and then a way to contact you as well as a next step card. So if you're interested in taking the next step toward becoming a member, getting more involved, serving, you can fill any of those cards out drop them in the back box on the way out, uh, and we'll be sure to follow up with those this week. Uh, Our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. The gospel is the good news um, that we were once separated from God because of our sin and now have been brought near to God through the work of Jesus, through placing our faith in Jesus who died for us on the cross and rose again. And when we do that, we get a new relationship with God. And so, Incredibly thankful for, uh, for Jesus for that. Secondly, community. Community is the idea that we were made for relationships with other people. And because we're made for relationships, we as a church exist uh, as a group of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, every walk, every, uh, every uh, walk of life, every ethnicity, um, every uh, type of temperament. God has brought us together as a family. And so we live that out. And it's a beautiful picture of God's grace that we are brought together in this way. And then lastly, mission. The good news should be told to other people. We tell other people about what Jesus has done for us, where they can find hope as well, and then live life shaped by what Jesus has done for us by loving and caring for our neighbors. Just a couple of announcements and really just centering around our Christmas uh, calendar. So last night we had our first uh, uh, lessons and carol service, which was incredible. Uh, we had an incredible time together uh, being able to celebrate in this unique way. Uh, and so the, the fun is continuing. Uh, so this coming Friday, we're having a Christmas Eve service with all of our City in a Hill Network churches. And we are going to be in Somerville at 5, 50, or five o'clock, not 5.15, I don't want to say 5.15. At five o'clock, you show up at 5.15, you're late. Um, show up, uh, it's going to be at Somerville we'll be with all of our, our churches. Uh, All this information is online. Uh, Coming up on the Sunday after Christmas, we are going to be in Newton at four o'clock for another joint service together. Uh, Give you a little time to sleep in after the Christmas crazy. And then the following Sunday, we're going to be in Brookline. So we're making the tour all around uh, with our city and the hill churches. We're going to be there at 10 o'clock. And so you can actually on the next slide, you can see where you can get all this information. Um, Go to our event page, coaforestills.org slash events. And if you go to that, if you're someone who needs a ride or would like a ride or would like to provide a ride for someone, there is a a form on each one of those event links where you can go and be, uh, we'll, be able to get you to do that. So we're not going to be here for another couple of weeks. We'll be back here on January 9th, but we'll be other places for the next couple of weeks. Got it? So if you show up here the next two weeks, you'll be be you and you're lonesome. So um, so we'll make sure you don't show up all by yourself. Um, The Sunday is the fourth Sunday of Advent. We've been celebrating 
the Advent season. And so for you, for some of us, Advent is a new concept or an unfamiliar concept. We think of this as the Christmas season, but really Christmas is the pinnacle of Advent. Christmas is the end. It's, it's like the dessert. It, it is the, it's the, what we've been longing for. So if, you, if you're someone who loves a good meal and you're, you want to eat your dessert first, you can't do that. Dessert is at the end. And so Christmas is like the dessert of the Advent season because Advent is this season of longing. The word Advent means coming. We're celebrating and remembering the first coming of Jesus, and we're stepping into, into the longing of Israel as they were longing for a Savior, for a Messiah to come. We step into that longing, and at Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus has come. We celebrate that the Messiah is here, that what Israel longed for and hoped for, we get to see with clear eyes. We understand the longing that they had because we live in a world full of loss. We live in a world that has experienced death. We live in a world of frustration and this inner ache that something is not right. And during the season, we focus on a hope that transcends our circumstances. We, 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 uh, we looked at a peace, which gives us real peace in a world of troubled joy in the midst of sorrow, all with an eye towards Jesus, waiting with expectation that he will bring to fulfillment and fruition our hope. And the final theme that we're going to look at this morning is the theme of love. If you were to sum up the gospel in one word, it would simply be love. John 15, 13, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. The gospel is that Jesus loved you and called you a friend and that he laid his life down for you that Jesus came to us because of his great love for us, out of his deep compassion welling up to send himself to us. And the word compassion, that of his compassion is really related, related to our helplessness. We are helpless. He saw us as a suffering people. He saw us as sheep without a shepherd who are lost. And if you look at the Old Testament, when we enter into that longing, we really see that the Old Testament is largely descriptive. Um, it's not prescriptive for a lot of it. It's not telling us to do some of the wild stuff we see in the Old Testament. It's describing what God's people were like. And it's really a testament to people's best efforts to live a good life. It's a testament to people's efforts to live a moral enough life to please God. But what we see time and time again is that God's people always fell short. They always fell away. They always lost attention and focus and desire. And if you look at this pattern of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, it would be that God called them together with a covenant. He said, I'll be your God if you'll be my people. And he would tell them how he wanted them to live. He would give them the law. He'd give them a promise. He'd remind them of this covenant. And then they would try to live it out for a little while. Then they would fail at it. Uh, there would be judgment that would come. They'd go, uh oh, we're in trouble. They would return and try to renew that covenant. And they would just keep doing the same thing over and over again. They kept running after other gods. And running after other gods in the Old Testament, if it's not bad enough that they were failing to worship the God who had created them, the only true God, many of the gods of the Old Testament revolved around incredible evil and injustice. The things that the people of those cultures would do were incredibly dark and evil. And they kept giving themselves to these things, showing themselves as a people who were due judgment. 
And so Isaiah, the book that we're going to be looking at this morning, the first part of the book really deals with judgment. The first half of the book deals with God's judgment towards sin. And it's really as if God is putting all the evidence before them and showing them how they've lived. It's like if you ever watch Law and Order and you've got somebody in the, he's, he's, they're in there with Stabler and Benson and they're in the, in the room and they're being interrogated and they're trying to deny that they're guilty or de- deny their guilt. And all of a sudden they put all the evidence in front of them. They're busted. That's what the first half of Isaiah is doing is it's putting all the evidence before them and said, you've lived these unjust lives. You've lived this way that you've oppressed other people. You've rejected the God who loves you. You are guilty. And we see this downward spiral towards evil throughout the Old Testament. And now they're being sent into exile. They are a people who need a savior. But the second half of Isaiah shows that that savior has come. A redeemer. God himself, who came as a suffering servant, who also came as a king, the Messiah. And in the same way, our lives are a testament to the fact that we need a savior. They're a testament to the fact that we have lived our best efforts to be moral people, to be smart people, to be kind people, to be people who care about the right things and the right causes and try to live in the right ways. But all we are trying to do is either outwork our past or secure a future for ourselves. And it's never enough. Even if you're not a religious person, we often try to live up to our own standards that we can't even live up to. And that's why every single one of us have this feeling of ought in our hearts. We have this feeling that we ought to be doing something better. We ought to be doing something more. We ought to be doing something more important, more valuable, more life-giving. And like Israel, this is a longing for a savior, one who will come and make it right and give us rest. But the problem is we are constantly looking for saviors in other places. We're looking for a better job. We're looking for a better relationship. We're looking for a better situation. We turn to some sort of substance. We turn to something to avoid the pain in our lives. But Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior that we've all been waiting for. And in Luke chapter four, Jesus in his first public sermon, his first sermon of his public ministry quotes the passage we're gonna look at today in Isaiah 61. This long-awaited prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. At the beginning of it, it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus comes as being sent by God, as God, with the spirit of God. And what this means is that true hope is finally here. True hope. Peace is finally here. True joy is finally here. True love is finally here. And and the New Testament tells us is that we know love because Jesus first loved us. In this way, Christ loved us, that he died for us. This passage shows us what kind of savior we have. And as we dig into Isaiah 61, verses one through three this morning, we're gonna look at three ideas. The first is who Jesus came to save. Who did Jesus come to save? Now, Jesus knew exactly who he was coming for. He wasn't surprised when he got here. It's not like Jesus saw the landscape and had this ideal rosy picture of who we are, we are and he got here to earth and went, wait a minute, you guys are truly messed up. It's not like a job interview. Everybody's been in that job interview where your employer gives you this rosy picture of this wonderful family and this work-life balance and all these things. And then you, once you get to the job, you're like, they lied to me. Everyone's experienced that. That's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. Jesus saw our brokenness. 
Jesus saw our mess. He saw how bad our situation is and he came anyway. In fact, this is the very reason that he came. He came because we are the poor and the brokenhearted. See, you realize you need a savior. Once you do, once you realize that you will long for that savior, those who've been looking to the horizon for a long time for relief, those who have lost hope that one will come, Jesus is the person who came for those very people. He came for the poor. He came for the helpless. He came for the afflicted. In the ancient world, it was a very dark place. I think when we think of the ancient world, we kind of romanticize it. We think of movies that we've seen and we imagine, especially if it's in the Greek or Roman world, we imagine people like walking around in togas on marble floors. It wasn't really like that. There, was, there, was, there were no programs. There was no social assistance. There was no refrigeration from food. There was no safety nets. These are all common graces we have now. Thank you to the Lord for those things. So if you were poor in that world, you were destitute, which meant that you're likely, you were likely going to starve to death or freeze to death unless someone showed compassion to you. And in fact, the Hebrew people had a separate offering even beyond their tithes and their offerings to give alms to the poor. They would give an extra offering for that. This is who Jesus brings good news to. When Jesus came, he said, my kingdom is coming. Not just personal salvation. This personal salvation is a part of that. It's not less than that, but it's more that God was coming so that our world could be a place where there would be no more wants. There would be no more suffering. There would be no more pain. There would be no more lack or affliction or oppression. And so I do believe that Jesus is saying as he fulfills this passage that we would care for the actual poor because that was at the heart of Jesus's ministry. It's easy for us to look at this, especially as a church in the West, uh, in, a, in a country that's very affluent, in a city that's very affluent. It's easy for us to look at a passage like this and just spiritualize it. It's easy for us to look at this and say, well, Jesus just meant the spiritually poor. And I don't think it's less than that, but I do think it's more than that. I believe that this is a call for us to go to the very real tangible needs of poverty around us. And in fact, if you look at the Old Testament, there are hints that the ethical way that God wanted his people to live was to care for the poor. They, they were to be unlike any other people around them. In the ancient world, it was very tribal. If you were not a part of us, you did not belong. And if you were not a part of us, it didn't matter what your need was. They were not going to take care of it. But in the Old Testament, we see God sending his people to love and care for the least. There was this call to care for the exile and the sojourner. They were to leave the edges of the field ungleaned so that they, the poor could eat. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, it talks about this great day of generosity where you were to leave your hands open until there was no need left. Jesus is the embodiment of this law who fulfilled it, promised a day of perfect equity and justice and a desire that the very least would be served. And so he, he in doing this, sends his church to make it on earth like it is in heaven. That's why part of our call to live out the gospel holistically in our city is to alleviate poverty. That's why we love our neighbors through English high school by giving away groceries and helping build a food pantry because this is a tangible example of how the gospel goes forward, how Jesus loves and cares for the poor. But you have to love the poor with the heart of Jesus. And we'll never truly get this until we get the gospel. We'll never truly love the poor in the way that Jesus loves the poor until we get this deeply. 
And until we do this, we'll either ignore the poor, we'll turn a blind eye, we'll, we'll look down upon the poor and we'll look at them as less than, we'll patronize them in our giving. And you won't get the gospel in this way until you become poor. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are spiritually poor, who see their utter desperation and need before a holy God, that they are saved by the grace of Jesus alone. Tim Keller says that, we in America are spiritually middle-class, not spiritually poor. We spiritually pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We do, we're determined to work harder. We're determined to do right morally. And in doing so, we're saying to God, God, you owe me. You owe me. You owe me your grace. You owe me a relationship with you. But I think this is why those who are actually physically poor often get the gospel better than those who are not because they understand their need. They're often the most likely to believe in historic Orthodox Christianity because they understand that salvation comes through faith alone and Jesus alone by his grace alone. Now, some might say, well, that's just a crutch. It's just the opiate of the masses, as Marx called it. But Jesus even said that the rich young ruler would have a hard time getting into heaven because he was holding on to something to justify him. The gospel gives us hope that transcends this life. It transcends our circumstances in a way that gives us real joy and real peace in the midst of them. Because we have a God who loves to save the poor, loves to save those who understand their need before him. Ray Orland says that when real people living real lives in this world demonstrate joy, it's living proof that God saves sinners. You have to become poor. We have to come to God with nothing in our hands, believing we owe all to him that is by his grace alone. Jesus also came to save the brokenhearted. Do you enter Christmas this year with a broken heart? Jesus came for you. He came to those who were hurting. He came to those who were mourning as a comforter. He came to bind up every human heartache and mend every emotion. He came to address every sin that we are convicted of. He came to meet every unmet and frustrated longing. Even those longings we do not believe will be fulfilled in this life. Jesus came to those right in the midst of them. And in fact, verse three tells us that he came to those who were mourning in Zion. Zion seems like a really strange place to mourn because it is in the very presence of God. Sorrow can often be mingled with joy that we can be in God's presence. We can be here on a Sunday morning. We can be reading our Bible alone, but yet still feel the sorrow and the mourning of this world. Christianity does not mean that we have to fake happiness. It means we live in a world that is broken, but the world tells us that there are two things you can do with despair. You can either just lean into it or you can smile in the middle of it. You can lean into it or have a smiling despair, which medicates, says medicate and cover and avoid and don't really deal with it because there's no real point to dealing with it because there's no way to deal with it. But Jesus gives us a hope that goes beyond our despair and beyond our suffering and meets us with joy in the middle of it. First Peter 1 says, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you see yourself this morning as someone who Jesus came to save? Do you see your poverty before him? Do you see yourself as someone with a broken heart? Jesus came for you. 
Secondly, how Jesus came to save. So we see who Jesus came to save. Now let's look at how he came to save. It'd be easy for us to jump into what Jesus did and focus on the cross. But before we get to that place, I want us to look at first who Jesus came as. Jesus embodied who he came to save. He embodied who he came for. And a big idea at Christmas and a lot of the songs that we sing center around the idea that God became a man, that God took on flesh. He became a human, that Jesus came to the poor as the poor. He had incredibly humble beginnings. He was born to a teen mom who everybody thought was sleeping around. Everybody thought got pregnant. So Jesus bore the shame of others speaking of his mother. He's born in this tiny little town called Nazareth. And in fact, Nathaniel, one of his future uh, uh, disciples, even said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, that is a little podunk town. Nobody ever gets out of that place. It's a, bunch of t- it's a bunch of townies. No one ever gets out of there. They said that in the worst possible way they could. He was penniless. He often was homeless. Jesus came to the poor, asked the poor. He came to the brokenhearted and had his heart broken. He felt the weight of our sorrow. He knew what it was like to be abandoned by friends. He knew what it was like to hunger. Jesus died alone. Jesus mourned like we mourn. He lost his cousin. He lost his earthly father. He lost earthly friends. He wept over his friend Lazarus. And I think he came this way in order to give weight to verses like Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does that mean? means you're not alone. It means that if you've experienced it, Jesus experienced it. If you've seen it, Jesus has seen it. And that when you go to him, you can trust him as you go to him because he's someone who understands. What have you been afraid or unwilling to take to Jesus because you just didn't think he could handle it? You just didn't think that he would understand it. He came like us. He also came preaching good news. He said that he brought good news. He proclaimed twice good news. And this is the idea of a herald announcing something that has long been awaited for. He's saying, it is here. It's like when Apple, every year, they have a couple of big Apple events. And leading up to these events, when there's gonna be the release of the new iPhone or the MacBook or Apple Watch or AirPods or whatever, there are all these rumors. Everybody's wondering, like, will this finally be the iPhone that lets us teleport? Like, is this gonna happen? And, And so everybody's, it's leading up to, And sometimes when the event comes, they finally say, here it is. Here's the new iPhone. Sometimes we're disappointed. We're like, that looks like the old one. Um, Sometimes we're like, man, this is revolutionary and this changes everything. Jesus came declaring good news that did not disappoint. He proclaimed saying, salvation is here. And the book of Isaiah is talking about an exile that is coming. You've lived this way, you've, you've, you've sinned this way, this is the judgment. They go into exile for hundreds of years, the nation of Israel gets passed around from nation to nation, being over them, controlling them. And so in Luke 4, when Jesus quotes these words, hundreds of years later, he's saying, it's happening, it's here. And the Jews who were listening to this prophecy would have known exactly what Jesus was saying. 
they would have known the weight of what Jesus just said. And so Jesus is either conceited, he's crazy, or he was telling them the truth. What Jesus was clearly saying is that hope has finally arrived. Salvation has finally arrived. Here is what this is gonna look like. And he tells them that salvation that I'm going to bring is gonna bring you freedom. He said that he would bring liberty, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Again, a world of no more oppression, no more injustice. This Christmas, there are those who are unjustly accused. There are those who've suffered abuse. We see rampant racism and inequity in our own city. And Jesus longs to put an end to that. As as God's people, he calls us to speak into and address these things, to work, to end them. And so even a song like, Oh Holy Night, which we often sing at Christmas time, actually became an abolitionist hymn. If you listen to the second verse, it says, truly, I'm not gonna sing it just for your your edification. that truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break for the slave is our brother and in him all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. See, loving one another means putting it into practice seeing where others are not flourishing and stepping into it. So what Jesus is saying is that the clock on death has started. The clock on captivity at the end of it has started and that all will be set free. But he's also talking about spiritual captivity, primarily talking about spiritual captivity that Jesus came to throw open the prison doors. He came to set us free from the penalty of sin through the cross, that through his very own blood, the penalty that you and I deserve to pay, Jesus paid on our behalf. He came to set us free from the power of sin, which binds so much of us. I don't know about you, even as a Christian, I like we still sin, right? We're still tempted to do wrong. He came to set us free of that through the, through the power of the Spirit so that one day we will be free from the presence of sin. This is why Galatians says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. But he also came to give us complete forgiveness, abundant, overflowing grace. Look at verse two. It says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's being described there is the year of Jubilee, an idea for the Old Testament people, and I believe for us too, that God really pressed upon them was the idea of rest. He had to tell them to rest because they don't rest. Years ago, I was sitting with a counselor and he said, you know, he said, I would imagine that you have every bit of your schedule lined out. I was like, I I do. That's how my brain works. He said, I really doubt that you have rest worked into your schedule. I doubt it's on your calendar. And I said, guilty. Uh, And because it was not, we will not rest unless someone tells us to rest. And we see that in the Bible that God calls his people to rest, not just to cease from work, but so that God can restore them as an act of trust that he would provide. And so he gave them the Sabbath. And I believe we should Sabbath. I think we should take time each week to set aside and to sit before God. I think part of that is what we do on Sundays, but also to just rest, to rest from productivity, to remember all that God is doing and trusting that he's working when we're not. But also there was described as a Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they wouldn't plant crops. They would give, and actually this is just good agriculture. They would let the, the ground heal so that it wouldn't, it wouldn't strip all the nutrients from the ground. They'd let it be restored and God would provide abundance for them in the sixth year. 
But also in that year, there have been times where those who were so poor that they couldn't do anything other than give themselves into indentured servitude, who had to pay off their work, in that seventh year, they would be freed. They'd be set free. And even if they hadn't paid off all their debts, their debts would be forgiven. But then, this is, what, this is what we're talking about here, it was a Sabbath of Sabbath year, Sabbath meaning seventh. Every 49 years, it was like a great reset. And they would return the property to its original landowner. So now you gotta remember in the Old Testament that God's people were given an inheritance. It was a place in the promised land that would be their own. And so let's say that you had made a bad business deal or you were so desperate to feed your kids, you had to sell your land in the Jubilee year, you would get it back. The idea here is that no matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how deeply in debt you might've been, you could get a clean slate. But here's the, here's the hard truth. There's no indication that the nation of Israel ever actually did it because it sounds way too good to be true, right? Because there's a way that somebody go, well, I don't care if your grandma or granddad did that years ago. That was a good business deal. I was, just, I was just being shrewd. It doesn't seem like anybody would actually do that. When Jesus said that he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, here's what he was saying. In the truest and the greatest sense, I am bringing you forgiveness. No matter how bad you messed it up, no matter how deeply you think you're in, you can always be forgiven. That is good news. Have you made that good news your own? Have you received the freedom that Jesus promised? Have you received the forgiveness that Jesus promises? If not, I would love to talk with you about that. I want you to note if, if you were comparing Isaiah 61 verses one through two with Jesus's words in Luke four, you may notice that Jesus left off the second half of verse two. He left off the words and the day of, venge the, the day of vengeance of our God. He leaves that part off. Now it's not like Jesus is shying away from the hard stuff, but the reason Jesus leaves that off is that Jesus is not fulfilling it yet. Isaiah is writing these words as a prophet, looking into the future and, and giving a prophecy. And, he's, and I want you to imagine if you've ever looked at mountains in the distance, you may see two mountains that look like they're fairly close to one another, but if you were to get up close to them, you would realize they're hundreds of miles apart. In the same way, this is what Isaiah is looking at. He's looking in the foreground at one mountain, which is the first coming of Jesus, and seeing the second mountain off in the distance as the second coming of Jesus, but he's saying them as if they're right here together. What he's seeing is he's seeing in the first coming of Jesus, a savior who would come. John 3.17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the first coming. That's what we're, we celebrate, but we're also looking to the second coming when Jesus is coming to judge when vengeance will be taken out and God's justice and God's vengeance is never spiteful. It's never wrong. It is always just. There will be a day when God makes right on every wrong, including mine and yours. And on that day, it will either be put on you and you will be given a defense for your record that will not stand up or Jesus will stand in your place. And you will claim the righteousness of Christ for you and you will be accepted. And right now in the midst of waiting, we're waiting in the in-between, this day of salvation, this opportunity for grace. And there is a deadline. 
It'd be like if Visa or MasterCard or Amex or Discover or whatever you know, credit card you might have, if they were to call you up and say, you have until December 31st, and until that day, if you'll just simply call us, we will forgive all of your debts. But this is the deadline. Every single one of us would call, maybe even if it said spam call on the, on the caller ID. Because what if it's legitimate? Jesus' offer to wipe away our debts is legitimate. As we close, the last thing, why Jesus came to save. Again, as I said at the beginning, if we were to sum up the gospel in one word, it is simply love. We're not talking Hallmark movie love. By the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed, it's all the same movie. In fact, they put a poster up years ago of, of all, or a post of all the posters from all the Hallmark movies. It's the exact same plot. They're wearing the exact same color sweaters. It's always like rich woman from the city leaves on a bad breakup, meets a, a handsome baker who has a past. It's the same thing every time. It's not that kind of love. It's not puppy love. It's not Hallmark love. It's agape love, sacrificial love a love that is for the good of others, for the restoration of others. And we see what this looks like in verse three. Jesus works to restore us by giving us dignity, that we would no longer wear ashes, but that we would wear a crown. In Israel, when someone died, it got messy. You would tear your clothes. You would cover yourself in ashes in order to say, this is what life is like now. Life is death. You looked like an absolute mess. It was like mascara, ugly cry, but a whole lot worse. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to wipe all of that away. I'm coming to make you clean. I'm coming to give you a crown of glory, a crown of life. Jesus comes to give us real joy, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. This represents preparing for a celebration that in this life, we are given flickers of eternal joy with a heart turned toward a greater joy to come. And this is why I believe as Christians, we should celebrate. We should party hard. We should not be cynical about Christmas. We should lean right into it and, and enjoy these images of the joy to come. Jesus comes to give us a reason to praise when our, our spirits are faint. That, that, that wording of faint spirit is like a flickering candle. That's the imagery of a candle that is about to go out. Jesus gives us life and oxygen, strength. He promises to make you righteous, that we may be called the oaks of righteousness, oaks that are strong and rooted. But the thing about an oak tree is it doesn't gain nourishment and strength on its own. It has to have a source. This is why in Psalm 1-3, we talk, we, it talks about the righteous person. He, he is the one who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its life does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Jesus gives us that. So why is all of that love? Because it costs Jesus so that we could have it. It costs Jesus to save us. That he took ash, he took death, so that we could receive a crown of life. That he took mourning and suffering so that we could have joy, that without him, our future would be hopeless. Yet Jesus suffered on the cross for our joy. That he took our sins so that we could be called righteous. And he did so, so that God would be glorified and seen as beautiful as he really is. And that when you trust in Jesus, when you look to him in your waiting, you are letting others know that he is glorious, that he is good. So as we wait, just four, four reminders as we wait. We need to look in four directions. We need to look back. 
we look back to the cross that our past has been dealt with through the blood of Jesus. We need to look forward to the hope that lies ahead. We need to look up to the God who loves us. And lastly, we need to look in. Do I have this hope? Do I have this love? Have I experienced this love personally? And if you've not, I would invite you to trust Jesus today who gave his life for you by his love that you could give your life to him. Let's pray. 